Executive Officer of Family Life, Rick Snavely. Thank you. I want to thank my boss, Mike. All right. <laughs> for those of you who weren't here for the worship time, that, that probably is a, a, a little bit of an inside joke. What a privilege to be here. It really is. There, there's something about coming back to Alfred Allen Bible that feels like old homecoming days. I mean, I look out here and I see people. I, I remember playing basketball against Ben Palmer back in high school, all right? <laughs> he looks a lot younger than I do, though, but I don't, you know, that was some great... Great, great times together. You know, I, I remember, I don't know if, if Jeff Ryan is here this morning or not, but if you've never had an experience uh, in your lifetime that you just always remember it with such great uh, feelings, uh, spending an evening in a tent with Jeff Ryan and Donnie Mix while it rained the whole night in a wilderness camp. I mean to tell you that, that was an experience. And we, will, we stood up all night and told jokes to each other. I mean, we just had a great, great time. But what a privilege it is to be here. And I thank you for this opportunity. You know, I love quoting a lot of verses back to the Lord when I'm praying to him in the morning. And there's one that, that always really sticks out to me. I love the, the writings of the Apostle Paul. And in Romans chapter 15 and verse 17, he says this, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. And as we go around to various churches and present uh, what God is doing at the Ministry of Family Life, our goal is that you would not see any person or any group of people, you would not see an organization or a ministry, but the glory of the Lord would shine forth. Our theme has always been to God be the glory, great things that he continues to do, and we are just incredibly blessed. You know, one of our, our main purposes for being in existence is to be a service organization to the local church to come alongside of the local church and to specialize in some things that we believe that could really be a help. One of those areas that we have been blessed at Family Life uh, with is a performing arts department to, to work with young people and even adults in helping to train them to use their God-given skills and abilities uh, to, to be able to serve him and to glorify him. And it's, it's really neat to be able to have uh, some of our staff here uh, we, we work with music and drama and dance, and, and we're blessed to have Lauren, Lauren Smith, right? I've got to make sure I get the last name right now, right? You know, she works with the, um, with the dance and stuff, and, and I'm privileged to introduce a, a couple of our uh, leaders in the performing arts department and have them kind of come and share maybe a personal word of testimony of God's leading in their life and, and even some of the passions that they have. And so Rodney Coe is the director of our theater arts at Family Life, and uh, he has been uh, such a blessing. And so, Rodney, that was your cue. Come on up and uh, share with us. All right. Oh, good morning, friends. How are y'all? Good to see you. Good to see you. Well, I'm just going to um, sort of go over like a little bit of my history, and then I'm just going to share my heart. Um, so, yeah, my name is Rodney Coe. Um, I work at Family Life. I'm the theater arts director there, and um, honored to work with my wife, Melanie, and Bob. And uh, I've got three kids back there, Selah, Judah, and Roman. We as of this September, it'll be two years for us at, uh, at Family Life, and such, such a blessing to be there. 
Um, so a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in Greenfield, Indiana. I'm an Indiana native. Go Hoosiers. Um, I went to uh, Ball State University, graduated from there with a degree in musical theater performance. Um, after graduating from, uh, from Ball State, I then moved to New York City. Uh, when I was in New York, I was blessed enough to, uh, to, to get a national tour, toured nationally, um, got my equity card, did the whole union thing for, for a number of years. Um, then after that, um, uh, moved to Minneapolis, which is actually where I met my amazing wife, Melanie. Um, the Lord brings... Uh, Blessings like that that move to Minnesota was uh, was a hard one at the time, but boy, if I knew what was waiting for me, it would have been a lot easier um, so um, while I was there, um, I was also uh, honored to, to work at the minneapolis children 's theater I was the um, the well, I was in, in charge of the education department there. And um, so I was uh, the admin, and I was also teaching. And the Minneapolis Children's Theater is a, uh, a great facility, a great place. And I was so honored to get to learn from a bunch of different teachers. And what I didn't know what I was walking into, I was like, oh, great. I get to teach and work with kids, and that's wonderful. Um, and then I got there, and that very year, we got the Tony for theater education. And I was like, oh, these, these people are real. Like, this is, these folks are really, really good. I just saw it as a great, great gig, you know? I was like, I, I love what I'm doing, and I love working with kids. And I was learning so much from these different teachers in teaching, if that makes sense. Um, so after that, we, um, my wife and I, we... Uh, ended up having, well, not we, that would be Melanie who had Selah, because, you know, otherwise it's complicated, but um, we had our daughter Selah, and from there we moved to, uh, we moved to um, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I spent three years with the Miracle Theater. Um, Miracle Theater is a, um, a passion play, kind of a rock opera type thing, and um, so spent three years there, and then we spent the last nine years at uh, Sight and Sound Theater, and um, acting and, and I'm blessed to be there and um, so yeah that's the that's the the stuff all right so here's the thing man I I love Jesus I love the Lord with everything in me every fiber of my being when I lived in New York uh, I was raised in a Christian home and I I didn't really know the Lord you know I I was going through the motions, but I didn't know him. And when I was in New York, I had an encounter with him, and it changed me from the inside out. And it was incredible. And uh, I, I think back on those times. Those New York times were hard times. There was a lot of life that happened in there. Um, you can find those things online. Um, there, my testimony is online for Sight and Sound, and um, I think it'll be on Sonny's podcast here soon as well. But um, that's a different story, but... That encounter with the Lord changed me from the inside out. And I used to be passionate about theater. And I loved teaching. Uh, but now my passions had completely switched. I love Jesus. I also love theater. And I love kids. Um, and so while I was working at Sight and Sound, I got to work at the, uh, uh, with our conservatory program. Um, that's where we're training young adults to become professional actors. And uh, then they accompany us on stage. They're on stage with us a certain number of shows every week, plus their rigorous show schedule. And um, while I was there, I, I sort of got to this point. I was, 
I was at this place where I was like 11 shows a week was starting to, to wear on me just a little bit. We're doing that, that stage, if you've not seen a sight and sound stage, it's the length of a football field and it wraps around the audience and we use all of it. So I was, I was exhausted <laughs> and I, I was in this place where I was like, I don't know, I, I don't, Lord, I don't know what's next. I mean, this is, this is great. I love theater. I love performing, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> if it's not for you. And I didn't know what the next step was. And then we get a call. Well, actually, it was a text from a friend of mine who was actually the reason that I got to Sight and Sound. Um, he was a, uh, his name is Dave Felty, and he was an actor in, in the show Ruth. And uh, got this text saying, hey, there's this place in the Finger Lakes that is looking for a theater arts director. And um, you, should, you should contact. So I did. Um, and I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I couldn't imagine leaving the stage, and yet I knew it was time. And I also, I, I love teaching, I love directing, I love writing, and I love, my favorite thing is like one-on-ones with people, like one-on-one with performers, like just pouring in and seeing people make discoveries. That's so exciting for me. So we came, uh, we, uh, we answered that text, and that was from, uh, uh, well, it, it was maybe a week later after that. We had uh, dinner with Rick, and uh, as a family, we made the decision, and uh, we came up here to Family Life. And I'll tell you, it was the best decision we ever made as a family. Um, and, uh, Praise the Lord. <laughs> and, uh, and we are... We are so blessed by this place. We're so blessed by these people. This is a beautiful part of the country first. But beyond that are the beautiful hearts of the people that we get to work with. It's incredible. The, the, yeah, like there's so much talent in these communities. Like it's just silly. It's silly. The guy up there. Man, I tell you, we're blessed to get to do what we do. And we're honored to do it. So at Family Life, it's real simple. We love the Lord. We love the performing arts as well. And we love to see those two come together. But I don't want to do do one without the other. I have no desire to do that. I did that for years, years and years, and sort of went up in the ranks. And it's pointless, really. You know, it's it's self-glorifying. It's it's not about him. And we're we're blessed to get to do what we do. So, yeah, that's our story. That's, um, that's how we got here. And I, I'll tell you, like, these last couple of years have been interesting, right, to be in the performing arts. But we've gotten creative in the midst of it. Um, I've got to put my hand at writing. We've, uh, we've got a, a project coming out called The Letter here, which we actually stepped into the film side of things, not just videoing it, but actual film. Um, that's turned out well. And I'll tell you one of the things that's, that's fun about that is the skill sets that you get to work with, the people, right? One of those is this guy right over here. His name's Bob Dusick. Bob is a music man extraordinaire. So he is my next, uh, he's your, your next speaker, and I'm just going to hand it off to him. Thank you guys so much. We couldn't do what we do without y'all. God bless you. Well, good morning. morning. Wow, this sounds familiar. Uh, It's kind of interesting. 
Uh, to tell you my story, I guess I will just say, uh, yes, I was just music all the time. Got my bachelor's from Eastman, went ahead and got my master's, went ahead and got my doctorate. Knew I was going to, uh, what can I say, go do the professor of music thing at some high-powered conservatory. Man, that is going to be my life, and that is it. And God had different ideas. Uh, I fell in love with and gave my life to Christ uh, when I was at Eastman doing my bachelor's work. And I just, uh, yeah, I really wanted that professorship. And those doors just kept on closing. And the other doors kept on opening. The doors to uh, worship arts. I became a pastor of worship arts in Denver, was there for about 18 years doing the stand in front of the congregation, leading worship and welcoming them, welcoming them on a Sunday morning. So I just wanted to see if you could just help me out a little bit. This feels so familiar. I'm going to say, good morning, Alfred Almond Bible Church, and you're going to respond with a ruckus, amazingly loud good morning, okay? Good morning, Alfred Almond Bible Church! Amen. Oh, wow, that feels so good. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, how did I come to family life? Well, it really wasn't my idea. As I said, uh, I really was a uh, music worship arts pastor in Denver. You know, sometimes you have to uh, step out in faith before the Lord opens up doors. And uh, I was in a bad situation. I knew I had to resign from a church, but I had no other prospects going forward. And so I uh, said, Lord, it's all in your hands. I have no idea what's going to be happening. I don't know what the next step is, but uh, here I go. About a month later, I get this call from a guy named Rick Snavely from a ministry called Family Life. I have no idea what's going on. He says, are you still looking for a job? Well, I wasn't looking for a job. And I said, what is going on here? But have you ever had that situation where all these so-called coincidences just keep happening over and over again and you realize they're not coincidences And pretty soon you're realizing that God is in it and he is just leading you and all the pieces are falling in place. And finally I said, okay, Lord, I get it. I had just vowed I would never move from Colorado. That's where I'm going to stay for the rest of my life. And yes, now I'm out in central New York interviewing at a place called Family Life, buying a house and starting a whole new adventure. Well... As a uh, former pastor of music and worship arts, uh, one of my favorite verses is uh, from the Gospel of John when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, the time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for those are the type of worshipers the Father seeks. And that really touches me because If those are the type that the Father seeks, that must mean that they are not necessarily found everywhere. And so, it is that the Music and Worship Arts Department at Family Life 
trains and develops instrumentalists, singers, dancers, and other artists in their respective fields to use their gifts for the glory of God. You know, that's where my heart is. I love to see people coming into a worship experience, recognizing that they are no longer just singing the song, but becoming the song. And uh, recognizing that it isn't about what they do, it's about who they are and who they are in Christ. To that end, we now have a couple of youth choirs. Uh, we obviously have a dance troupe. You know about them. I think something called One Pulse. Uh, we've been putting on concerts of praise. Uh, we've started some chamber music. We just love to mentor in the you know, praise team area. And we're looking forward to doing more virtual things to reach more people. We're looking forward to the time where we will be doing uh, private lessons from a Christian world viewpoint. My passion has always been to see God glorified through his people. And family life has allowed me to do just that. So finally, I just will say that the primary reason I guess I'm here today is to say thank you. You know, because without you, none of what we do in the worship arts, in the theater arts, without you, none of what we do would, would be possible. And so, I will just close by saying thank you, thank God, and God bless you. Pastor Justin, once again, thank you for the opportunity of being here. I, I find it interesting that Rodney, New York City, Minneapolis, Bob, Denver, they've hit the big time. They've moved to Bath. All right? <laughs> Not really, but uh, amazing to see what the Lord has done. Thank you, folks. Your support of the ministry is so appreciated, and uh, we are grateful for the honor of being here today. Appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. Wow, I got to talk to my booking agent. This is going to be a tough act to follow. So, well, hey, we're here today uh, to kick off our spring missions emphasis, and we're so glad you're all here. We want to make sure you get here early next Sunday, too, because, because uh, we're going to be playing a video from Family Life Network. So most of you know we've got uh, Wednesday night during ABF. We're going to have Lauren uh, introducing her ministry, playing a video there, and we're going to play another FLN video to kick off next Sunday, okay? So make sure you're here early for that as well. I just wanted to go over a couple of things um, for our faith uh, promises and things of that nature. In your bulletins, you'll have an insert, and in that insert, it's going to let you know everything that's going on this week, um, and it has some different things in it. You notice we have the prayer slips out there. Um, that you can fill out, and also the faith promises. We primarily do that in October. So if you've already done your prayer slips and your faith promise, then you don't no need to do it again, okay? That's primarily done in October. But for those of you that weren't able to or have joined us since then, uh, please feel free to uh, peruse the table out there for all of our different missionaries throughout the world and uh, the faith promise slips. And also... 
Uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, besides this Wednesday night, we've got Steve Sanford coming. You know, we support the uh, Sanfords in Papua New Guinea. And so Steve is uh, uh, going to be coming to ministering to us next Sunday. So make sure you're here for that as well. Wanted to uh, just pick up where Pastor Justin left off last week. Uh, he left off with us in Matthew 28, if you remember. And he left off with the verse, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So who would have thought in a uh, sermon on Daniel we would have ended up kicking off our missions emphasis. What a wonderful lead-in for that. Um, Pastor shared with us that making disciples of all nations is the way that the Son of Man exercises that universal authority. So that is the way that he does that. And we also visited um, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. This is probably a familiar verse as well. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that verse right there is where the authority is given. The dominion is given to the Son of Man. So what a wonderful kickoff for our spring emphasis with uh, Pastor Justin's closing last week. And spring emphasis and uh, fall emphasis is just our way of bringing before you, um, as Mike said, this church and uh, this congregation has always had a heart for missions. And it's just a wonderful part to be part of the missions committee to see that, to be a part of that. Um, to see, we know that the prayers you offer up for our missionaries, the support you offer up for our missionaries, it touches them. It moves them. They are so appreciative of those things. Um, the sacrificial giving. We kicked off the Adopt-A-Missionary program last spring. So many of you have done that, not only with cards and letters, birthdays, things like that nature, but many of you have done it with special gifts. And, and I want to remind you that we do support FLN. They are one of our missionaries. So you would be able to give, uh, take them on to adopt them as a missionary family. Um, so you could uh, adopt them and do cards and letters, offer them up in prayers, and also special gifts to them as well. Um, so what you're doing is making a difference. You folks are difference makers. You folks are difference makers in the lives of FLN. You're, you're difference makers in the lives of our missionaries. And through that, there are going to be many tribes and tongues and peoples and nations around the throne of God because of the difference that you're making. So I just wanted to encourage you to keep the faith and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. in and through our labors. We thank you for the good work that's going on, that you're doing through Family Life Ministries. Thank you for the impact that they make on, well, us, as well as others throughout this region and all over the place. We're grateful for the extent of your reach, your 
unhindered reach. Thank you that your grace is powerful to change lives and you use people like us, weak and frail people. Thank you that you can use us to bring about the accomplishment of your purposes, your great mission in this world. Help us as we open your word to listen well, to see clearly what's there in these words printed on these pages. Thank you for your powerful word. We ask you that you would change us where we need to be changed. Help us to yield. Help us to listen with an open heart, open ears. Grant that by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we emphasize missions, we are highlighting God's mission. We are drawing our attention to the work that God has called all of His people to be involved in. We are looking closely at the Lord Jesus building His church. We are focusing on the growth of God's kingdom in this world. I'd like to consider this through the lens of the Decalogue. What is the Decalogue? That's probably not a word you're used to using, but it is a word used to refer to what we often call the Ten Commandments. In the book of Exodus, we read the story of how God worked through Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, saving them from slavery to the Egyptians and bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6 records the first words God told Moses to relay to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God has rescued the people. They've been saved by grace from their slavery in Egypt. Now, God proposes marriage in a manner of speaking. He proposes a covenant relationship. And Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, is going to summarize the terms of the relationship. How does God expect His people to live in relationship with Him? Let's read these familiar verses and make a few observations. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. First notice verse 2. Before any commands are given, God reminds the people who He is and what He has already done for them. The law that these commands summarize is not to be obeyed to seek salvation. The law is given to people who have already been saved. Second, this passage stands alone as a distinct document. Look at Exodus 34, 28. So Moses was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it's unclear initially who did the writing, but Moses revisits this moment in Deuteronomy 4.13. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Yahweh inscribed these Ten Commands on a stone tablet. And then he made a carbon copy, so to speak, on a second stone tablet. Don't envision that half the commands were written on one tablet and the other half were written on the other. Rather, this is following the well-known ancient practice of covenant-making in the ancient world where two copies of the terms of the relationship are drawn up, one for each party to keep. Now, let me make one more observation at this point. The phrase, Ten Commandments, is problematic. It's right there in all of our English Bibles pretty much in these two verses plus one additional verse, Deuteronomy 10.4. However, the Hebrew word translated commandments is the word usually translated simply as word. Now, yes, they are commands, but the Bible never actually refers to this passage or this document as commandments. I wish our English Bibles would bring this over so we could get used to calling them the ten words or the Decalogue. The uh, older English Bibles, such as John Wycliffe produced uh, in the late 1300s, translating from the Latin, brought this phrase over into Middle English properly as the ten words. The word decalogue is the Greek, essentially, bringing that over accurately into Greek as the ten words, deca, ten, log, logos, word. But later English versions, including the King James Version, gave in to church pressure and enshrined the phrase Ten Commandments as the title of this section of Scripture. I believe that this label leads us to misunderstand their function and their purpose. We have a tendency to elevate this passage as though it were somehow more authoritative than the rest of the Mosaic Law. Or we view this passage as though it were some kind of summary of moral law or natural law universally binding on all humanity. But that is not what's going on here. And that's not the way the rest of the Bible views this passage. Rather, simply put, these are ten summary principles for covenant relationship with God given to the people of Israel 
in order to shape their worldview and their lifestyle. Recognizing this, it seems odd, to put it mildly, that Christians have been at times so animated about seeing these ten words displayed in public places, such as court buildings or schools. And I might add that most of the plaques containing these ten words that have hung in various public places in my lifetime are missing the first and most important statement. Verse 2 is not typically included. I suppose this is because it is not a command, but when you list verses 3 to 17 without verse 2, you have taken the commands out of context and ensured that people who read them from the plaque will misunderstand their meaning and intention. God's laws, God's commands are for God's people. As the Apostle Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans and Galatians, to confront people living in the flesh with God's law only exacerbates their sin. As one of my professors at Wheaton, Dan Block, puts it, the problem with American society is not that people don't keep the Ten Commandments. It is that most have never left Egypt. Now, we know there are ten words, ten statements, ten principles, but how should we count the words? This might seem like a strange question, but different churches count them differently. The Reformed tradition enshrined in the Westminster Confession of Faith especially is what we're all probably most used to. The first command is verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second command is recorded in verses 4 to 6, forbidding the construction and worship of images or idols. However, Lutherans and Roman Catholics see all of verses 3 through 6 as the first command. They have noticed that in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The plural pronouns most naturally go back to the plural gods of verse 3. Thus, they see verses 4 through 6 not as a second command, but as a way of fleshing out and developing the first command. I am slightly inclined to agree that this is a better reading of the passage. How then do they still count ten words? Verse 17 is then seen as two distinct commands regarding coveting. The Reformed tradition tends to see the first statement of verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, as being fleshed out by the rest of the verse, so that wife, slaves, oxen, donkeys, and anything else spells out what he means by house. The other way of viewing it recognizes that the word house is actually referring to a physical structure, a home, a person's home. And then the final separate command would protect a man's relationships and livelihood reflected in his household. I won't go into all the details here, but this may account for the very different wording reflected in Deuteronomy 5, where the Decalogue is repeated by Moses. However you count them, there are ten, and the difference amounts to how you view the beginning and the end of the document. Now, I'm seeking to reorient our understanding of the Decalogue a bit this morning. I've already challenged your thinking, probably, concerning the purpose of these words, as well as how they're counted. Now let's consider the perspective in view here. The commands are entirely others-focused. What do I mean by that? 
First, consider that each command is actually addressed to a masculine singular audience. In other words, strictly speaking, each command is directed to a male. And when you consider what is expected of this male, you begin to see that he is assumed to be an adult Israelite male who is married, head of the household, who has children and servants, parents still living, land and a farm, and the ability to host travelers. Does that mean the commands don't apply to women and children or single men or poor families? No. But it does mean that the head of the household is here given the responsibility to ensure that everyone in his care follows this way of living. Moreover, consider viewing these commands as a kind of bill of rights. In fact, it may be the original bill of rights in all the world, but it's not like a modern bill of rights, like the bill of rights that's part of our national constitution in America. Rather, it's a bill of rights for my neighbor. Every command is shaped to protect my neighbor from me. Like all of Scripture, the ten words recognize that I am the problem. I am a threat to my neighbor. And these commands are intended to curtail the tendency of a person with power and wealth to abuse those gifts from the Lord in such a way that my neighbor is abused or taken advantage of. It is often recognized that the first few commands have to do with our relationship with God, while the last ones are dealing with our relationship with other people. Yes, But consider from the vantage point of my neighbor's rights where God is my neighbor, my premier neighbor. He is the other in this relationship, primarily. The first command, considering verses 3 to 6 together, protects Yahweh's right to exclusive worship. Then verse 7 highlights Yahweh's right to a faithful representative. Then verses 8 through 11, the Sabbath command has to do with protecting Yahweh's right to provide for His people and to establish their schedule, their routine. As is clearer in the restatement in Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath command also speaks of the peoples, the people at large, their right to rest. Then verse 12 speaks of your parents' right to respect. Verse 13 points to your neighbor's right to life. Verse 14, your neighbor's right to an undefiled, undisturbed marriage. Verse 15, your neighbor's right to personal property. And verse 16, your neighbor's right to justice and an accurate reputation. Then the first part of verse 17 speaks of your neighbor's right to a safe home. And the rest of verse 17 highlights your neighbor's right to his own private pursuits. Thus, for each Israelite at least... They were not to be primarily concerned with protecting or fighting for their own rights. Rather, they were to be concerned with protecting and standing up for the rights of their neighbor, both God and people. Another way to say this is that the Decalogue is a way of summarizing what it would look like if the people of Israel loved Yahweh their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their resources— and loved their neighbors, their human neighbors, as themselves. But what does all this have to do with missions? Returning to the Lord's covenant proposal, He was going to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This implies 
that they would have a role in mediating God's kingdom, God's holiness, and God's presence to other nations. As Dan Block says, Israel's task as a holy nation is to be a light to the Gentiles. The Ten Commandments are a means toward that end. I'd like to explore that thought with specific reference to the second or third, depending on how you count them, command regarding taking God's name in vain. After reminding the people of his rescue of them from slavery, grounding all the commands in the grace of the gospel, Yahweh first prohibits the people of Israel from worshiping, giving allegiance to, and constructing images representing other gods. This also prohibits the people from making images of Yahweh himself. He has the right to exclusive worship, to be the sole recipient of their worship, and to define the terms of how he is to be worshipped. This reflects the background that God created humanity to be God's image. With humanity's rebellion and rejection of that responsibility in the world, God has now summoned Israel to live as God's image, God's corporate representative in the world. Let's look at closely at Exodus 20, verse 7, and consider what it means to bear God's name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7 again. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does this command mean? Interestingly, of all the ten words, this one has the most variety in English translations. The verb and the phrase in vain and how they fit together present an apparent difficulty. Eight English Bibles that I have are like the ESV, take in vain. Another ten versions, such as the NIV, have misuse as equivalent to the whole phrase. Similarly, a couple of versions have make wrong use. Other versions suggest use lightly, idly utter, use thoughtlessly, or use carelessly. One Jewish translation has swear falsely, and conveying a similar idea, one Catholic translation has invoke in vain. The Good News translation has use for evil purposes. The Living Bible, a paraphrase, tries to capture multiple ideas, use irreverently, nor use it to swear to a falsehood. Finally, the Message, another contemporary paraphrase, says, no using the name of Yahweh your God in curses or silly banter. Now, what all of these have in common is understanding the command in terms strictly focused on our speech. Thus, many folks today, when they think of this command, think that it's relatively easy to obey. If we avoid exclaiming the name Jesus Christ or the phrase, Oh my God, in prayer, or when we're not praying or other exclamatory statements when we're not actually addressing God in prayer, then we've done well. Or we might extend it to any kind of profanity, swearing in the sense of cussing. In some families, words like gosh and golly and gee, are, or phrases like oh my goodness, are recognized as substitutes for blasphemous uses of the word God or the name Jesus, and thus are forbidden. Or we could go to the extreme that the Jews did after the return from exile. In order to make sure that they didn't accidentally disobey this command, they stopped pronouncing the name of God altogether, the name Yahweh, the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush and said in Exodus 3.15, 
This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The name that Christians today have all but forgotten because our English Bibles have followed Jewish tradition in replacing the name of God in the text of Scripture with the title Lord. And I'm not intending to be critical of that tradition, by the way. The New Testament writers followed that tradition as well, using the Greek word for Lord in quotations from the Old Testament, where the text used the name Yahweh. But now, since we have a complete Hebrew Bible and a complete Greek New Testament, we can recover and remember the name as it was revealed and also honor the tradition that was developed with the best of intentions. As it turns out, Bible scholars from John MacArthur's Master's College and Seminary, in consultation with other scholars, are producing a revision of the New American Standard Bible. They're calling the Legacy Standard Bible, a key feature of which which is the inclusion of the name Yahweh in the English text, representing the more than 6,800 times it occurs in the Old Testament, instead of the traditional small caps, Lord. You can go online and read Psalms and Proverbs and the New Testament as well of this Bible translation for free if you're interested. I hope more Bible translations will follow suit in the future. However, I think traditional interpretation of this command has misunderstood its breadth, limiting it to prohibiting certain kinds of speech. Now, don't misunderstand me. All of the typical applications to speech are appropriate. The command does prohibit God's people from using the name of God flippantly, irreverently, or as a cuss word. The command does prohibit God's people from swearing, taking oaths in the name of Yahweh that you don't intend to keep. But I think it means so much more. So if you think that you've kept this command pretty well, look more closely and despair. (laughs) You're laughing. You thought that was a joke. Good job. Let's start with the traditional rendering, as in the ESV. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. What does it mean to take the name? Maybe you do think first of using the name, as in speaking it in conversation. However, consider this. My wife's given name is Tamara Wells. When she married me, she took my name, Langley, and became Tamara Langley forevermore. At our wedding... Her brother walked up to me, picked me up in a bear hug, lifted me off the ground, and told me, well, you killed a Wells today. (laughs) Metaphorically speaking, he wasn't wrong. Her new identity is and forever shall be Langley, a fact I remind her of periodically. (laughs) So a wife may take the name of her husband. Now, I recognize that this custom of A wife taking her husband's last name is a modern and distinctly Western practice. However, the tradition has ancient precursors. Different cultures have different ways of labeling and making clear a wife's relationship to her husband and his family, going all the way back to the original marriage in the Garden of Eden. It is framed in such a way as to highlight the husband's responsibility for his wife and also the wife's accountability to her husband. But I digress. The Hebrew here is really quite straightforward in this regard. The Hebrew verb used is a word that most often refers to the physical act of carrying, lifting, or bearing something. There is one and only one other place in the Old Testament where this verb is used with name as its object. 
In Exodus 28, Yahweh is instructing Moses about the nature of the priesthood within Israel. As part of this instruction, he gives details on the specific clothing that the high priest is to wear. We pick up this description in verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. Aaron and all the high priests after him would literally bear the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. He will literally wear their names on his clothing. What does this literal bearing mean? The high priest is representing the people whose names he bears on his clothing. I said earlier that this command highlights Yahweh's right to a faithful representative. That is the significance of this metaphor. The people of Israel as a whole and each Israelite individually serves as a representative of Yahweh in this world. As we saw in Exodus 19, Yahweh intended to transform this group of people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like the high priest who has on his turban the words, holy to Yahweh. So also, four times in Deuteronomy, we read these words, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses says, For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Aaron, the high priest, represents the people of Israel in the presence of Yahweh by bearing their names literally on his clothes. The people of Israel represent Yahweh by bearing his name in the presence of the nations. In a certain sense, the high priest ensures that the people will continue to bear the name of Yahweh. He is instructed to pronounce a famous blessing over the people of Israel, found in number 6, verses 24 and 25. May Yahweh bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look with favor on you and give you peace. Then in verse 26, Moses explains the significance of this repeated blessing. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is the language of physical branding, the way an owner of cattle might brand the cows with his special mark of ownership, or in the ancient world, as a slave owner might brand his human slaves. The prologue of the Decalogue in Exodus 20 verse 2 reminds the people of Israel that he has rescued them from their slavery in Egypt, but leading up to the great rescue, the Lord told Moses that he was going to lead the people out of Egypt for the purpose of serving God, serving as slaves of Yahweh. This was the message Moses was supposed to tell both Pharaoh and also the people. The repeated line from Yahweh through Moses to Pharaoh was, 
Let my people go that they may serve me. Using the same word for serve as was used to describe their serving Pharaoh himself. The Lord makes this plain in Leviticus 25, 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Our English translations have a tendency to soften the meaning of this word in some contexts, recognizing the truth that being a slave of God is not the same kind of experience as being a slave of Pharaoh or other people. But the Hebrew word is the same. Thus, the language of putting Yahweh's name on the people or the people bearing Yahweh's name reflects this background. This is also the background of the famous language from 2 Chronicles 7.14, which begins, If my people who are called by my name. To be called by Yahweh's name is to be known as Yahweh's people. The people of Israel are the people who have taken the name of Yahweh upon themselves. Said the other way around, the people of Israel are the people Yahweh has put his name on. So, What about the rest of the prohibition? Exodus 20 verse 7 again says, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. What does in vain mean? In vain reflects a prepositional phrase in Hebrew. The noun is a common one that refers to deception, falsehood, something that doesn't mesh with reality or emptiness. The prepositional phrase appears 11 times in the Old Testament. And the ESV translates it in vain, nine of those 11 times. The two exceptions, Jeremiah 18, 15 and Psalm 24, 4, both appear in context to describe how the people make offerings to false gods. And so it's describing false worship in some way. In Exodus 20, the phrase works well with its normal meaning. Thus the command means, don't seek to represent Yahweh in a way that doesn't match reality. Certainly, this should shape the way we speak about the Lord and indeed the way we use His name or refer to Him. But it also shapes so much more. One commentator has summarized the implications particularly well. John Oswalt writes, Thus, at the heart of this commandment is the call for the covenant partner to do nothing that would portray God as anything less than absolutely holy to do nothing that would seek to use Him for our own ends, to do nothing that would cause the world to see Him as less than He is. When read like this, suddenly this commandment takes on an all-encompassing sense. If Yahweh has branded the people of Israel, claiming them as His own, and granting to them the responsibility of communicating His name to the world making His name famous in all the nations, and so cultivating His reputation around the globe, then they must live in such a way that fits that role. Israel's mission was to wear the name of Yahweh appropriately, to carry His name faithfully, so that the nations might see God's glory reflected in His people. There's also a warning attached to this commandment. Exodus 20 verse 7 says in full, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. No specific punishment is threatened, but this is a rhetorical device, a kind of understatement, students of literature called meiosis. 
It's like when your mom sees you reaching for the cookies that she just baked for her guests, and she says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You should know when she says that with a particular tone that she means deadly serious business. Ajith Fernando, teaching director for Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, writes, By their actions, humans, especially those who are known as God's people, can represent God in such a way that His name looks empty or worthless. Suddenly, we should feel the weight of this command. This command is condemning hypocrisy in all of its forms, as well as speaking foolishly or flippantly about God and also treating His name with disrespect. Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you bear the name of Christ? Would people know it from looking at your life? Would people know it from listening to your words? Do you have his name tattooed on your arm? Do you have his sign affixed to your car bumper? One writer observes, The prohibition against taking the Lord's name in vain easily takes aim at the very center of every act we do and its motivation in the human heart, even and especially as these motivations clothe themselves with religious goals. Here and now, let me make abundantly clear, this command sets all of us as blasphemers and hypocrites. It's probably the one out of ten that we thought we could handle. Jesus reflects the background of this command when he says in the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said there will be many in this situation on Judgment Day. Could it be that most people who claim to bear the name of the Lord do so in vain? Their emptiness will be revealed on Judgment Day. What about you? What do you think would be your protest on Judgment Day? Lord, Lord, I went to church in your name. Lord, I gave money to charity in your name. Lord, I supported missionaries. Lord, I had a fish on my car. Lord, I listened to Family Life Network in my car every day. Lord, my parents were Christians. Lord, I got baptized. Lord, I memorized a bunch of Bible verses. Lord, I told them to sing Amazing Grace at my funeral. All of those things are good things that Christians may do. But none of those things make you a Christian. No, there will be no protest on Judgment Day that will be upheld in God's courtroom. Rather, I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism answers its first question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. 
because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Or, as the great hymn says, for my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And yet, as Jesus said in that same passage, it is those It is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven who will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, it is those who bear God's name properly and rightly. This is only possible. This only happens because the one who eternally bears God's name became a man and lived out the identity and calling of Adam and Israel to reflect the image of God to bear the name of God in himself, in his words, and his deeds. He wore God's name perfectly. But then he became nothing. He emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He became the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the suffering slave of Yahweh. And he shed his blood to pay for my failures to uphold the name, to represent the God of my salvation in the world. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God emptied himself for the sake of his name. This is good news for blasphemers and hypocrites. But we must ask the flip side of the question as well. The command prohibits bearing God's name emptily, vainly. How do we then bear God's name properly? appropriately, fittingly. Certainly it involves our speaking. We should speak well of God, speak well of Jesus. That means we need to learn theology. That is to say, we need to learn how to speak and how to act in ways that fit for people saved by God. Another of my former professors, Kevin Van Hooser, seeks to connect theology and discipleship biblically. He writes, Theology's task is to equip disciples to speak and act in ways that correspond to the gospel in particular contexts. Is that what you think about when you think about theology? Should be. He goes on, Not all words and acts are appropriate to the subject matter. Not all words and acts achieve theodramatic fit. Doctrine's role in the drama is to enable the church to build wisdom's house, a pattern of speech and action that fits in with creation and redemption alike to the glory of God. There is drama in seeing whether what the church builds will collapse when the waves begin to beat or whether it will stand in spite of opposition. Theology is the pursuit of understanding how God has revealed himself in Scripture and then to allow that understanding to shape how we speak and how we live. This is where the positive side of the command comes to its all-encompassing, identity-shaping significance. The prophet Micah announces the future restoration of Israel and Jerusalem and the incorporation of Gentiles into the people of God in Micah 4, 1-5. Listen to these words. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, And the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. Currently, in Micah's day, all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But in the latter days, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. The we includes people from Israel and people from all nations together. People from the nations are quoted in verse 2 as saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. To walk in his paths is equivalent to walk in the name of Yahweh our God. The New Testament equivalent of this language is found in Colossians 3.17 where Paul commands us, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice how easily the apostle shifts from the Old Testament language of walking in the name of Yahweh to doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. How will Micah's prophecy come to its fulfillment? In a word, missions. You're probably wondering how we're connecting the command about not taking the name of Yahweh in vain to missions. As we've come to a broader understanding of the commandment, we can now see how missions is all about bearing God's name in all the nations. I was surprised to discover just how prevalent this theme is in the Bible. I knew that very often God indicates that He does what He does for the sake of His name. For example, the Lord addresses Pharaoh in Exodus 9.16 and says, But for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. David reflected on the events involved in the Exodus as well and prayed, saying in 2 Samuel 7.23, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Solomon, in his prayer dedicating the temple, said in 1 Kings 8, 41-43, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. 
Prophet Ezekiel indicates that breaking this command was a reason for God's judgment against Israel and Judah. Repeatedly, the prophet indicates that Israel had profaned his name, treated it as common. Dan Block writes, Instead of advertising Yahweh's glory and grace, those he chose to be his hand-picked treasure to declare his praises among the nations misrepresented him and brought shame to his name. This was not merely how they spoke of Yahweh. This was a reflection of their failure to live in a way that honored him. Consider Ezekiel 20 verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Later in the book of Ezekiel, we find that the Lord put himself in a dilemma. His reputation was tainted among the nations because of the behavior of Israel. God exiled the people so that his name might not be profaned among the nations. But in Ezekiel 36.20, the Lord said... But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. Thus Yahweh's reputation had been tarnished because of their behavior and then because of his judgment against them. So he had to act again to vindicate his name. Look at verses 21 to 23. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How can Yahweh vindicate his name? Consider verses 24 to 32. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares Lord Yahweh. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So first, he would return them to the land. That happened in 539 B.C. when Yahweh raised up the Medo-Persian king Cyrus and he allowed the Jews to return home and begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Second, he would cleanse them from their sin and radically transform the people, giving them a new heart, enabling them to obey him by putting his Holy Spirit inside of them. 
That began to happen with the establishment of the new covenant. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent the Spirit as the seal and guarantee of the inheritance promised to all of God's people. We've come full circle already. If bearing the name of Yahweh brands His people with a mark of His ownership, then the way He brands His people today is with the seal of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of His adopted sons. The high priests of Israel perpetually maintained the stamp of ownership on the people by repeatedly putting the name of Yahweh through the pronouncement of a blessing. Jesus, our great high priest, has put His name on all His followers by sealing us with the Holy Spirit once and for all. Under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, God's people, the nation of Israel, were given these ten words as a summary of God's expectations for how they must live in the world differently from all the other nations. As Dan Block writes, Because Israel is God's people, they are to reflect God's nature in their conduct. In this way, they will bear witness to the nations, Yahweh is God and no other, which will lead the nations to acknowledge that God exists. However, they failed. Israel bore the name of Yahweh in vain. As we saw earlier, Jesus came and embodied the nation of Israel, accomplished the mission that Israel could not complete, and has now commissioned His followers to carry His name to the ends of the earth. It is specifically the name of Jesus that we carry in the proclamation of the gospel as we seek to make disciples of all nations. Let's consider what living the Great Commission looks, should look like from this angle. After the risen Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and saved him by giving him a new heart, he also appeared in a vision to a man named Ananias. In the vision, Jesus told Ananias what he had in store for this Saul. We read in Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's the mission, not just for Saul, also known as Paul, for all of us. The risen Jesus had said as much to several disciples. He said that the scriptures indicated that after the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead, he adds in Luke 24, 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul characterized his mission in Romans 1.5 as having received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Professor John Frame writes, Christianity is a public faith. As the Great Commission implies, it is to be carried out in workplaces and marketplaces, as well as in churches and in homes. God gives us His name to be proclaimed, not to be hidden as a private treasure. Jesus gave to all of us the Great Commission, recorded in Matthew 28, 18-20. Look at it once again and see the ultimate positive fulfillment of the requirement of the command we've looked at today. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice several things. First, as we briefly observed last Sunday, the success of the mission is based on Jesus' universal authority. The stone kingdom of Daniel 2 will grow into the mountain and fill the whole earth. Knowledge of God's glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus will build His church. The name of the Lord will be known and exalted in all the nations. The fact of Jesus' resurrection guarantees all of it. Second, the command to make disciples is accomplished through three primary actions. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Going involves more than just speaking. It involves reaching out, giving our very selves to people from the nations. This is how Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Going involves extending ourselves. This can be through the labor of prayer. This can be through the sacrifice of financial giving. Or this can be through the moving of your body and your home. But it is more than just preaching or speaking. Indeed, if we go, we must go in the name of the Lord, bearing His name, carrying His name wherever we go. Once we reach out, when people respond to the proclamation of the gospel with faith and repentance, once people have become disciples, we baptize them. The them refers to the disciples we've made from all the nations. Disciples baptize disciples. Notice, however, that baptism is in the one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name. Baptism has sometimes been referred to as a renaming ceremony. Indeed, we are bearing the name of Yahweh in our baptism, publicly displaying the renaming that has already actually occurred. The moment we began trusting in Jesus, our identity was transformed. We received the new heart. We received the Holy Spirit of God offered to us in the new covenant on the basis of the death of Jesus. Then there's the ongoing, comprehensive teaching. This is not about head knowledge, however. This is practical theology. We are to be teaching each other to obey everything Jesus commanded. The Big Ten take a back seat here. Or at least they find their proper place interpreted through the Jesus lens and seen in their proper biblical light. We do this teaching the way the Apostle Paul did. Yes, there's a verbal component, but perhaps even more importantly, we stand in front of each other and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. At the end of the day, that is what it means to bear the name of the Lord. It is much more than the words we say, though it certainly includes that. We are ambassadors for Christ, the Messianic King. We are His representatives in this world. And I'll close by paraphrasing 2 Corinthians chapter 5, part of it. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to Himself by not counting people's failures against them and by entrusting to us the message of this reconciling work. Therefore, on behalf of the Messiah... We are ambassadors. Even as God is exhorting through us, we urge you on behalf of the Messiah 
be reconciled to God. On our behalf, God treated the man who never knew sin the way he treats sin itself, so that in him we ourselves might become the embodiment of God's righteousness. And so, as we work together, we are exhorting you not to receive the grace of God in vain, or said differently, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for the guarantees of the successful mission that you have called us into. We labor based on those promises. We labor based on those guarantees. We don't sit back passive. We don't sit back in idleness. We get to work by the power of your Holy Spirit working inside of us. We pray that you would continue to stir us up, motivate us, move us, give us a genuine love for people who don't know you. Help us to see them as in desperate, desperate need. And help us to share our very lives with them, even as we also tell them about our great Savior. Thank you for the grace that you have poured out to each one of us. Thank you for the gifts that come in the new covenant. The gifts achieved and purchased by the death of your Son. The precious blood that was shed for your people. We give you thanks again and again and again. We marvel that you have forgiven our sins. We marvel that you have forgiven our tendency to besmirch your name and to not represent you faithfully. Thank you for continuing to bear with us and to go with us wherever we go, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our failure. You do great things through us. And so we ask you humbly to keep doing it bear much fruit in us as we abide in Christ. Thank you for the power of your word to give people life. You've done it for us. Do it again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.